Hey guys, I'd like to introduce you to a new podcast that I know you're going to love. Do you like travel? Do you like picturesque locations and getting away from it all? Well, this new podcast has all that and murder. It's called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that took place on vacation. Hosted by a true crime fanatic, her comedy writer husband and his TV producing partner, Slaycation brings a unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, and WTF stories of vacations gone horribly wrong. From the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorne, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff, to Angelica and Vincent, two recently engaged lovebirds whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended underwater. Each episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that'll intrigue you. It's the discussion between a longtime married couple and business partners who happen to be Emmy-nominated TV producers. Each episode of Slaycation also includes humor, takeaway and travel tips that will keep your next vacation from being your last. If you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Van Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Andrew Fitzgerald, and welcome to Scary Mysteries, where we deliver you disturbing crime stories that you won't find anywhere else. It's a disturbing fact that sometimes people disappear and are never heard from again. Obviously, something happened to them, but for a variety of reasons, sometimes we just never get the ending to their stories because there just isn't enough information to piece the puzzle together. Did they go into hiding? Were they kidnapped or killed? Obviously, efforts were made to locate these unfortunate individuals, but there's only so much that can be done. And so over time, these cases get cold, and what's left then is only theories and speculation. Here are five baffling and mysterious unsolved missing person cases. Number five, Branson Perry. Branson Perry was only 20 when his parents divorced. He chose to live with his father, Bob, at West Oak Street in Skidmore, Missouri. A caring and loving young man, the blonde-haired child did so as he wanted to take care of his ailing parent. 
It was the afternoon of April 11, 2002, when he invited his friend, Jenna Crawford, to come over and help clean their house as his father was due to return home after being hospitalized. Meanwhile, two mechanics were working on the elder Perry's car outside. At around 3 p.m., Branson told Jenna that he was going outside to stash away a couple of jumper cables that the repairman used. He then told her that he was going to go out for a bit to grab something, and this would be the last time the young man was ever seen. Not knowing where Branson went, the mechanics and the friend had all went back to their homes. And ever since his father was hospitalized, his grandmother, Joanne Stinnett, made sure to stop by the Perry residence to check in. On April 12th, she noticed that the house was unlocked and deserted. Joanne found this unusual. Over the next several days, she had been calling to see if Branson was home, but he still wasn't. This then made her call her grandson's mother, Rebecca Clino, who also said she hadn't spoken to him either. Bob, who was discharged several days later than what was scheduled, immediately worked with his ex-wife to file a missing persons report. Officers from the Nodaway County Police promptly conducted a search operation whereby fields, farms, and nearby abandoned buildings were checked. Needless to say, though, their efforts proved fruitless. During the investigation, over 100 people were interviewed in Branson's disappearance, including the mechanics and Jenna, but not one of them had any idea where he went. This lack of leads eventually halted the progress in the case, but then in 2003, a rather shocking development emerged. It began with the arrest of a former Presbyterian minister and Boy Scout leader, Jack Rogers, who was charged with a different crime and that was that he supposedly attempted to perform sex reassignment surgery on a trans woman, which failed. He was arrested on charges including the practice of medicine without a license. An ensuing search on his property uncovered more disturbing crimes. Aside from child pornography material, authorities also discovered online posts in which he talked about raping, torturing, and murdering his male victims. Rogers even talked about cannibalizing severed genitals. But nothing had prepared the police for what they came across when they read a post wherein he described murdering a blonde hitchhiker whom he then buried in the Ozarks. They also found a necklace which looked exactly like the one that Branson owned. Rogers, though, denied the allegations concerning that and Perry's case. He was eventually convicted and sentenced to prison for his other crimes, but not for the disappearance. Despite a true lack of hard evidence, the public has pretty much been convinced that the so-called cannibalistic minister is most likely responsible for Branson's vanishing. Number 4. Susan Walsh In this world, people who speak the truth can often get into big trouble. They get hated, slandered, or worse, killed. Susan Walsh was one of them who had it the worst as she became a victim of such animosity. Life wasn't easy for Susan. She had to work as a stripper to pay her way through college. But she knew she could do better by becoming a freelance writer eventually. She worked her way up 
and then eventually landed a job at the iconic Village Voice in New York City. Considering her past, she was mostly assigned to write about the horrors of the local sex industry. In the months leading up to her tragedy, she had been investigating about how the Russian mafia allegedly trafficked young girls and made them work at strip clubs in New Jersey. It was a piece that garnered her widespread attention. Amidst the praise, the 36-year-old, though, was wary of the threats she was receiving by the people that she dared talk about. While all that happened, Susan received another assignment to write about an underground vampire subculture in Manhattan. Rumors had it that people would allegedly drink human blood, some of which was stolen blood from banks in the hospital. As bold and tenacious as she was, the journalist continued with her probe, until suddenly in 1996, when the mother of one left her apartment in Nutley, New Jersey, for unknown reasons, and then never returned. The ensuing investigation led police to speculate that this incident could be connected to her work. As such, it could be a mob hit following her expose on the illegal strip club ring, as well as her efforts on uncovering the aforementioned vampire cult. More truths about the woman came to light during the investigation, including the theory that it could be drug-related. Apparently, she had a brief history of drug and alcohol abuse during her time as a stripper. Moreover, there was speculation saying that Susan may have simply walked away from her life, and she apparently did so for a reason. As it turns out that a month after she vanished, a friend and colleague told police that she saw the journalist getting into a limousine. Detectives were quick to pick up on that lead and managed to trace the vehicle and its owner. Much to their surprise, the driver did say that he had been with a woman fitting Susan's description. He can't, however, be truly certain where she'd gone after taking the ride. If anything, the police believe that the missing woman was definitely scared for her and her son's life, which was why she had to run away. Regardless of her reasons, or lack thereof, Susan Walsh has yet to be found. But considering the mess that she found herself in, authorities have a hunch that she was actually killed this was all because she attempted to uncover the truth that some people simply didn't want out there. Number 3. Amy Fitzpatrick For a loving family, nothing would stop them from exhausting their resources, time, money, or effort if it means bringing their loved one back into the fold. The trials of the Fitzpatrick family began on New Year's Day in 2008 when their 15-year-old daughter, Amy, said goodbye to her friend, Ashley Rose. She had been over at Ashley's house in Malaga, Spain, where they were helping babysit Ashley's younger brother. It was already around 10 at night when the teenager set out and she was headed straight back to her own home. The girl, who was originally from Dublin, Ireland, was in Spain to live with her mother and her new partner, Dave Mahone. The trip back supposedly would only take a few minutes, but hours passed, and still, she hadn't reached her destination. Amy's family then filed a missing persons report, which prompted local law enforcement to conduct a search, but nothing came of it. 
and things began to take a weird turn when eight months after the incident, the home of Fitzpatrick's lawyer in Riviera del Sol was robbed. Interestingly, the burglars only took documents relating to the disappearance case, and the rest of the attorney's possessions remained intact. In June of the following year, Amy's mother received a telephone call from someone claiming to know the teenager's location. She described the caller as having an African accent. Since the phone used was prepaid, the authorities couldn't trace back who had actually made the call. Years waned by, and the case eventually went cold. However, Amy's family didn't give up on the search. They even opted to hire the same private investigators who worked on the disappearance of Madeline McCann. It was quite expensive, to say the least, but the parents, of course, were bent on solving the mystery. All the money they poured in did bring out some interesting developments. In 2012, detectives found out that an Irish gangland serial killer named Eric Wilson may have actually murdered the girl. This bodes well with a statement from witnesses who said that they saw the youngster talking to an older man on the night of January 2008. While promising, authorities have still yet to find her body to prove this theory. Reports also came out saying that she had been with a mystery blonde woman at the Trafalgar Bar hours after she was last seen. If anything, investigators are quite sure that Amy didn't run away herself considering that her passport and money were left at home when she vanished. Her family has since moved back to Ireland, but they remain hopeful that one day their little girl, who should be around 30 now, will someday be found. Number 2. Marvin Clark This baffling tale began on October 30th, 1926, when Marvin, who was already around 75 years old at the time, left his home in Tagard, Oregon, to visit his daughter, Sidney McDougall. It has to be noted that the septuagenarian had just suffered paralysis, and thus he couldn't use his right arm and would tend to limp when walking. Despite this, though, the father reportedly pushed through his pain and planned to check on his child who had been working as a hotel manager in Portland. Two days later, Mary, Marvin's longtime wife, called their daughter to ask when the man would be getting back home. This came as a surprise to everyone when Sidney said that he had never arrived in the first place. And even more so, she wasn't aware that he was actually coming over. Mary and Sidney then filed a missing persons report. It was initially believed that he had taken a stagecoach to travel, but a follow-up report noted that he had taken a bus instead. The bus station story was corroborated with statements from witnesses who said that they saw a man in a dark suit and slacks waiting at the station in downtown Portland. It shouldn't have been difficult to find him, suffice to say, considering that he's easily recognizable with his paralysis and limp. However, much to everyone's bewilderment, not a single person had seen him ever since. There were a handful of developments that came out over the course of the investigation. This included a postcard which was allegedly written and sent by Marvin from a location in Bellingham, Washington. 
but nothing really could be made out of this piece of evidence, and so once again, the trail on Marvin went cold. Fast forward several decades, and on May 19, 1986, loggers discovered the remains of an unidentified male in the hills between Tigard and Portland. Various items were found alongside the skeleton of this John Doe, including a revolver. This led police to believe that the unknown man committed suicide. After the discovery was announced, a distant relative of Mr. Clark expressed interest in the deceased. She thought this could be her long-lost grandfather. Unfortunately, though, DNA research and identification weren't as sophisticated during that time. And so... The case stalled again, that is, until 2011, when an Oregon state medical examiner's office reviewed the DNA evidence. Seven years later, Marvin's descendants came forward to provide DNA samples, hoping that this could help determine a match with the John Doe. But the results only brought out more questions than answers. Apparently, the man in the woods was not Marvin, and this in turn opened up a new mystery regarding his true identity. 95 years have already passed, and so it's certain that Marvin is gone. However, his family remains optimistic that one day his remains would finally be found, and this case can finally be resolved. Number 1. Emanuela Orlandi For a city or a country that measures less than half a square kilometer in size, the Vatican could definitely be considered a safe haven here on Earth. However, judging from what happened in this next story, the Holy See proved anything but safe for its inhabitants. Emanuela Orlandi was among those privileged to be born inside the Vatican. Her father, being an employee of the Papal household, enabled them to live inside the city where, as children, they got to stroll around the famed gardens, visit the palace, and even get acquainted with the bishops and the Pope himself. Her education was nothing short of prestigious. She got to learn the classics, including music, wherein she took up flute lessons three days a week. On June 22, 1983, the 15-year-old said goodbye to her parents as she was about to attend her music class. She didn't make it and even called her sister after. However, unbeknownst to her family, this would be the last time that they get to talk to the girl. She didn't come back home that day or the next. Worried and distressed, the Orlandis filed a missing persons report and an investigation quickly took place. There were then a couple of tips that surfaced. The first came from a man who referred to himself as Perlugi. He said he'd seen the teenager in Rome selling Avon products, a thing that Emmanuel mentioned to her sister before disappearing. The second tip came also from a man who said that a young woman who introduced herself as Barbara was seen at a bar near the music school. Both pieces of information paved the way for the case to move forward slowly, but at some point, authorities couldn't determine her location or where she'd gone. As time passed, more tips trickled through, with one saying that her disappearance could somehow be involved with a terrorist activity 
perpetrated by a group called the Grey Wolves. These Turkish nationals supposedly had plans to kidnap and then exchange Orlandi for one of their own. This person in question had purportedly been in prison for attempting to assassinate the Pope two years earlier. More wild speculations arose surrounding Emanuela's disappearance and presumed death, and even mentioned the involvement of a local mafia group called the Banda della Magliana, led by Enrico de Pettis. Interestingly, though, none of these theories can be substantiated. All throughout the years, the Vatican, with its vast power and influence, dared not to meddle on the issue. It was only in 2013 when Mr. Orlandi pleaded for Pope Francis and the Church to intervene. But even then, nothing came of it. They were only told that Emanuela was already in heaven a statement that prompted the family, as well as the public, to actually suspect the Vatican was involved. There's no telling if it's really the mafia, the Turkish terrorist group, or the Vatican's rumored pedophile ring that are behind the 1983 incident. However, the fact still remains that Emanuela Orlandi's disappearance is no closer to being solved. So that's going to do it, guys, for our podcast today. If you enjoyed what we have here, please do take the time to rate and share this content with your weird friends. Craving more intriguing true crime stories? Then head over to our Everytown podcast, because over there we serve up some of the craziest tales that are happening all around the country. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I'll see you very soon.